This is Philippians chapter 4, 4 through 12. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, and whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned but had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Our kids can be dismissed down the hall to programming down there. And we are glad that you are here today for worship at the 9 o'clock service. Sing it if you know it, okay? Here's a story of a lovely lady who was bringing up three very lovely girls. All of them had hair of gold, like their mother, the youngest one in curls. Here's the story of a man named Brady who was busy with three boys of his own. They were four men living all together, but they were all alone. Dun, 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 till the one day when the lady met this fellow and they knew that it was much more than a hunch that this crew must somehow form a family. That's the way we all became the... Thank you, the Brady Bunch. Dun, dun, dun. That's the way we became the Brady Bunch. Dun, 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 dun. Welcome to church. Isn't that great? For those of you who have watched that show as kids every day, right? Those, those words are there. I, I had a cheat sheet in front of me just in case, okay? But you didn't. You didn't need one because they're there. That's the power of music. And that's kind of what we've been exploring in these weeks together in this series called Hymnology because there are great words of the faith that we have put music to, and it allows us to cement these concepts and these words in our minds and in our lives, just like the Brady Bunch is there. Words like, it is, it is well, are there too. And they need to be. And so today, I want to tell you a story. It's Chicago. It's 1871. And if you know your Chicago history, you know that that was the year of the great Chicago fire. Uh, the, the fire of Chicago took a third 
of the city down to rubble. And at that very time, there was a guy named Horatio. He was a lawyer in Chicago. He was heavily invested in real estate. And of course, you can imagine that uh, after the fire devastated the city, he lost almost all of his fortune. About this same time, he had a son who was four years old who died of scarlet fever. And so the town is in rubble, his son is dead, and Horatio drowned his grief into his work. He was a lawyer, but he was also a real estate guy, and so he poured himself into, like many others did at that time in Chicago, the monumental task of rebuilding the city of Chicago. It was, uh, it was hard work, but it was easy to pour yourself into that kind of thing because 100,000 people had been left homeless after the fire. And so he spent two years dedicating himself to rebuilding the city of Chicago. And then in 1873, he and his wife, Anna, decided they desperately needed a break, and they decided they would take a trip to Europe with their family. Now, Horatio was a faithful Christian, and uh, he had really some connections to some high-profile preachers in Europe. Uh, one of those in England, in London, England, D.L. Moody, if you have recognized, if you recognize that name, uh, he had some connections with him. And so Moody actually invited Horatio to come and join him in London and do some ministry for a while. And then they, they were going to stay in, in Europe and just take an extended vacation at the same time. And so he prepared for he and his wife and their four daughters to take this trip. And the only way at that day uh, was to go by ship. And so they arranged passage. And when the time came to leave, they were in New York Horatio was detained uh, on some real estate business at the very last minute, and so he decided, you know what, I'm going to send my family on ahead of me, and I will catch up to them. And so he took them to the ship that they had booked passage on. It was a luxury French liner. It was called the Ville du Havre. And uh, when he moved Anna and uh, Maggie and Tanetta and Annie and Bessie into the cabin room that they had booked, something, something didn't sit right with him. And so before he left, he had them all relocated to a room that was closer to the bow of the ship. And he, he said his goodbyes, and he promised he would see them soon, that he would catch up, and they went to sea, and he went back to his business. During the night hours of November 22nd, 1873, the Ville du Havre sailed quietly over smooth seas, and then suddenly, passengers were jolted out of their beds. The, the ship had collided with another ship in the middle of the ocean, and water began pouring in. The impact from the other ship almost split the Ville du Havre in two, and it began to sink, sink immediately. Anna was able to rush her daughters to the deck because they were in a different room. But when she got there, only two lifeboats had been deployed. And as you can imagine, uh, prayers went up, screams and oaths. There was a darkness of unmeasured nightmare that you can imagine. People clung, clung to posts and they, they tumbled through the darkness and some were swept away by the powerful icy ocean Currents and within two hours, this luxury liner became a wreck at the bottom of the sea. 
There were roughly 350 pa passengers on board, only 87 of them survived, and most of that number was the crew who got into the two lifeboats first. The other boat was damaged, but it was able to still sail, and so it turned around and it did deploy its own lifeboats to some of the survivors, and one of the survivors that was found was Horatio's wife, Anna. She was clinging to a piece of wreckage she was nearly unconscious, but Horatio's four daughters, Maggie, who was 11, and Annie, who was nine, and Annie, who was five, and Bessie, who was two, were never found. They were lost at sea. When the survivors landed in Wales, Anna sent a cable back to her husband. It began this way. Saved, alone, what shall I do? And Horatio immediately got onto another ship. He wanted to join his wife as quickly as possible, and so he booked passage on a different ship. He was sailing on his way across the Atlantic, and the captain of that ship knew Horatio's tragedy. And so on one particularly cold December night, he called Horatio aside, and he just said, I believe that we are now passing over the place where the Ville du Havre went down. Let's stop the story right there. Most people, let's be honest, we escape that kind of suffering. Most of us don't have that kind, that level of suffering. If we look through the scripture, and if we were to put together a list of the most prominent sufferers in the Bible, one guy that would have to be on that list is the Apostle Paul. Even at the very beginning of his ministry, let me just run through some scripture here real fast. In Acts chapter 9, God says when he calls Paul into ministry, we will show him how much he must suffer for my name. In Acts chapter 40, 14, Paul himself says, only through many tribulations will we enter the kingdom of God. In Acts uh, six times, Paul catalogs his troubles and all of his afflictions. Um, in Romans chapter 8, he says, I have had tribulation and distress and persecution and famine or nakedness or danger or sword. He lists all of those things because he's experienced those things. In the next passage, uh, 1 Corinthians 4, he says, I was sentenced to death, I was a spectacle to the world, I'm a fool, I'm weak, I'm disrepute, I have disrepute, I, I hunger and thirst. Next slide. Poorly dressed, I'm buffeted and homeless, I'm reviled, I'm persecuted, I'm slander, I'm the scum of the world, I'm the refuse of all things. Next slide, here's the next verse, 2 Corinthians 4, I'm afflicted in every way, I'm perplexed, I'm persecuted, I'm struck down. Next slide. I'm afflicted, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. He's not just listing things off. These are things that he endured. Next thing, uh, there are great labors that I've had, far more imprisonments than other people, countless beatings. I've often been near death. I've survived the 40 lashes minus one, five times, three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That's not the leafy kind of stone. That's the hard rock kind of stone. Uh, three times I was shipwrecked, 
Uh, I was adrift at sea. I was in danger from rivers and robbers and my own people and from Gentiles and in the city and in the wilderness and at sea, in danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, sleepless night, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and exposure. And on top of that, I've had anxiety for all of the churches. Look, one more. I've had weakness, weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Paul <laughs> endured everything that a person can endure. And here's the question. After you read a list like that, after you, after you go through all of it, if you just think just for a second, just about a couple of those things that he would have had to endure. Here's the question. How did Paul handle all of that? How do you do that? Here's what he writes. Here's one thing he writes in 2 Corinthians. He says, but that, all of that, all of that affliction that I experienced was to make me rely not on myself, but on God who, here's the, here's the key, raises the dead. Now, that was the sermon last week. One of the things that enabled Paul to get through all of the stuff that he had to suffer was to know that God raises people from the dead. The resurrection is real and it is true. Here's the second thing that he points to. He points to the comfort of God. He does this in uh, 2 Corinthians 1.4, and he says that God allows us to comfort others with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And so, what we need to understand from this is that Paul was able to comfort others because he received a comfort from God, and he was able to comfort others with that same comfort. So here's the question. In order to find how, out how Paul faced all of his sufferings, we only need to look at how he comforted others in their sufferings. And so how did he do that? One of the places that he does that is the scripture that we read earlier, Philippians chapter 4. And I'm not going to reread the whole passage, but I just want to point out a few pieces of Scripture, a few sentences. Here's in verse 7, he says this, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Here's verse 9, and what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. What he gives as comfort to the people that need comfort that, is, that are reading his letters is the peace of God. And what Paul is doing here is he's giving what he knows to give. He's giving what has helped him. And he endured all of these sufferings, all of these tragedies because of the peace of God. And now he's offering that same thing to people that he writes to so that they can handle their suffering, so that they can get through their pain. And it was the peace of God that he hands them. And so the question is, what is the peace of God? Let's tackle that just for a few minutes, because that's one of those phrases, the peace of God, that becomes Christianese really quickly. It's a phrase that we throw out if we are talking to other Christians, um, and we throw out the peace of God, but nobody really understands what it means. We just think it's a nice thing to say. Well, let's explore that. What is the peace of God? From this text, we can get an answer. Number one, it is an inner calm and equilibrium. Look at verses 11 and 12. Paul says, 
I have learned the secret of being content in every situation. It means that he is the same no matter what the circumstance is. Now realize how strong of a claim that is in light of all the troubles that he was afflicted with. Prison, imprisonment, beatings, stonings, left for dead. And Paul says, in all of it, I am content. I'm the same no matter what the circumstances is. We want inner peace, right? I want you to think about your troubles compared to Paul's. If I think about my own, I mean, what are my troubles? I, I, I worry about some bills sometimes. I worry about progress at work or, or relationships with other people. Maybe I worry about a difficult boss. Maybe I worry about inflation. Maybe I worry about my fantasy football record, right? Maybe I worry if I'm in a different stage of life about a big date or that I don't have a big date. Now, those are not small things. They're not trivial, right? But let's face facts. Paul is facing torture, death. He's in prison as he writes these words. And what he says is, I have learned to smile at all of it because I know the secret. There is a secret to remain the same in your being no matter what life is throwing at you in the moment. Wow, okay. Paul, you have my attention. What's the secret? Do you mind sharing that? Right? And Paul will, will share, but, but I want you to note first that Paul does not point in this text to his ability to be able to endure hardship. He doesn't point to the fact that he's gotten through these things because he was raised to be a tough guy or because he has some natural talent for absorbing loss. And so this is not a situation where you're either born with this ability or you're not born with this ability. Look at what he says very closely. He says... I have, what's the word? Learned. Learned to be content. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and being in want. It means that this was not natural for Paul either, but he learned it. It's like playing the piano. You don't, you don't just walk up to the piano and start playing. You learn how to play. And the peace of God is the same way. It doesn't come naturally for us. We have to learn to have it. Paul did, and he said that's the secret. Here's the second thing about the peace of God that we need to understand. It's not merely an absence, but it's a presence. One of my professors would always say that peace is not the absence of conflict, but it is calm even in the midst of conflict. That's what peace is. And a great picture for that is like a raging hurricane. I want you to picture that in your mind, a raging hurricane. Do you know that, that if all you have to do in the middle of a raging hurricane is go under the surface of the water just even a few feet, maybe even 50? And you know what the fish are doing down there? Hanging out, doing what fish do, because there's peace under the storm. Peace is a sensation of being absolutely protected and safe. Verse 7 doesn't really translate well for us in our English versions to get this, but it says that the peace of God will guard 
our hearts and our minds. And that word guard is an idea, the idea behind it is to completely surround and fortify a building or a city or a territory to protect it from outside invasion. And so I read of a story once where a woman came home, a single woman came home and found her apartment or house ransacked. Somebody had broken in, stolen a bunch of things. And she didn't have anywhere to go. And she, she was terrified of staying there that night. And so what the policemen who were in charge of the scene did were, was they called two or three police uh, cruisers and they parked outside her house that whole night. They surrounded it. And she said, I could sleep. That's the idea. If you have an army surrounding you, you can sleep really well. But the important twist that Paul is leading us to here is that if you, if you just go and consult any popular source on overcoming anxiety or fear, here's the advice that you will get. Just remove your thoughts. Don't think about that negative idea. Just suppress it, remove it, and uh, that's one way. I mean... You can, you can try to refuse to admit the facts in front of you. You can kind of suppress reality, uh, but any peace that you will gain from that, I think you'll agree, is very short-lived. But Paul here says exactly the opposite. He says, absence isn't the goal. Presence is the goal. It's not just any presence that he calls forth either. He says, but the very presence of God himself, the God of peace, will be with you. Christian peace begins not by refusing to face the facts, not by suppressing your reality, not by getting rid of unwanted thoughts, but Christian peace begins by inviting a living power into your life that helps you face those reality. It lifts you up over them, it, it helps you through them, and it stands guard on your behalf. And so when this peace of God, this true peace is experienced, you get this sense that whatever has happened, whatever will happen, no matter what, everything will ultimately be all right. Maybe not right at the moment, probably not right at the moment, but there's this sense that ultimately it will all be all right. The peace of God is a sense of God's protection that almost defies our reason and logic. And mostly, it takes a great tragedy in our life to experience how profoundly reassuring this peace of God is. I want you to imagine it this way. Um, I want you to picture a coastline in a storm, and I tried to get a Bob Ross painting, but he didn't paint many storms. And so here's, here's just a huge wave crashing into the rocks, right? And you, and you can tell this, the ocean is angry, right? And, and it comes and it covers the rock. It pounds the rock. It smashes against the rock wave after wave. This water does everything it can do to the rock. But when the storm is over, what's going to happen? The waters and the waves are going to recede and the rock is still going to be there. The rock hasn't budged an inch. And a person that knows the peace of God, the peace that passes understanding, is like that kind of a rock. No matter what comes at him or her, you'll never lose your footing. But 
in order to know that you're a rock like that, sometimes it takes a terrifying storm to come at you before you'll know how secure you really are. And Paul is that example for us. He's been beaten, he's been stoned, flogged, shipwrecked, betrayed. There were murder plots against his life. Wave after wave comes against Paul, but there he is. He says, I found a way to be poised no matter what, and all of this disaster coming at me will not break me, and I learned how. It wasn't natural, and it won't be for you either, but you can learn it too. So here's the, here's the next question. How do we learn the peace of God? How do we do this? And Paul gives us ways in this text to learn and develop this kind of peace of God in our life. Now, here's the caution. This is not some medium article that we're outlining four steps guaranteed to bring inner peace. Uh, that's not, it's not a technique that Paul is giving here. On the other hand, Paul does give us some disciplines to practice, and if we will do them, if we will integrate them into our regular, regular part of our life, then we will be headed towards God's peace more often than not. And so here's what he says in this passage. He says, you can get the peace of God, you can be headed to the peace of God by thinking, by thinking, and by loving. And today I just want to, just want to touch on the first one, thinking. Verses 8 and 9 say this, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things and the God of peace will be with you. When Paul says honorable and just and commendable, and those are the things that you need to think about, we might get this idea that Paul is telling us to have just general high and lofty thoughts about life. Uh, dwell on the beneficial concepts in life. Don't waste your time on the unproductive thoughts in life, as if he's kind of saying, you know, the best thing would be to get off TikTok and really read a book, right? And that's part of it. But I think there's more to it than that. Pauline scholars tell us this, that Paul is referring here to specific teachings of the Bible about God and about sin and about Christ and about salvation and about the world and human nature and God's plans for the world, which means the plan of salvation. And that's what he was referring to when he uses all of these words. He says to logizomai about these things, think about these things. It's an accounting term, and it means to reconcile or to count up. And hey, has anybody uh, reconciled a checkbook lately? No, you haven't? There are no hands, right? Because nobody does that. And Robert, you're weird, okay? All right? We need to introduce you to the internet, okay? Um, nobody does that, right? It takes too much math. But here Paul says, that's exactly what you need to do when it comes to your faith. Take the time to count it up, to reckon it, to add it up, do some spiritual math with the core doctrines of your faith. Think them through, ponder them, consider them deeply, and add them up to, to see what they mean. And that, that kind of thinking leads us to the peace 
of God. I want you to go back to the self-help section in Amazon, and I want you to pick any book on anxiety or stress or worry and open, up, open it up, and, and here's how it will steer you. It won't be the way Paul just did just now. It, it will be something different. It'll say, uh, you know, if you want to get rid of anxiety, then it won't say ponder the deepest questions of life. Why are we here? What is this all for? Is there a God? If so, do, what does he want? It, it won't say that. It'll say, you know what? Here's a re relaxation technique you can use. Here, here's a, a pattern for work-rest balance. Take some time. Go sit on a bench. Look at the sunset. Get away from your worries. Redirect your negative thoughts and emotions and, and, uh, and, and guilt and let them be absorbed and taken over by the amazing hues of the sky and the sun from the view on your park bench, right? And there's a reason for that kind of approach. It's because our age is the first one in the history of the world to operate without answers to the big questions in life. We have embraced as absolute truth the idea that we are here by accident, that there is no God, that that's a joke of a concept. And when we die, that's it. Lights out, blackness. Nothing will be remembered of you or anyone else, and the world itself will burn up one day and come to nothing. And so listen, if we came from nothing and we are going to nothing, then anyone with half a wit will have to concede that our lives being lived in the middle of nothing and nothing also mean nothing. And so there's no reason to entertain, why are we here? Don't worry about that. Just relax on the beach. Pop a top if you have to. Try to find the things that bring you pleasure. And that's the path to peace. Paul says, the real peace that you're after, God's peace, comes exactly the opposite way. Not by thinking less, but by thinking more and thinking more intensely about the big issues in life. And so we have a storm come, waves come into our life. Our first task, Paul says, is to think, reckon what is happening, count it, add it up, ask yourself, is Jesus really the Son of God? In light of this tragedy, is Jesus really the Son of God? Did Jesus really come to earth and die for me and rise again and ascend to heaven and take his place at the right hand of God? Did he really do that? Count it up. Add it up. Did he endure infinite suffering on my behalf so that someday he could embrace me and wipe every tear from my eye? Count it up. Add it up. Think about that. If so... There is all the comfort in the world that everything ultimately will be made right. And that helps me navigate those giant waves that come into my life today. And so if you're a Christian today and you have little or no peace, it may be because you're not thinking. Peace comes from a disciplined thinking out of the implications of what we believe. Now, if you're not a Christian today, I advise you this, don't think at all. <laughs> Doing so will only bring you to the reality of your worldview, which only really ends in despair. And so if you want to go that way, by all means, sit on the beach, pop a cork, sit under a tree, not, try not to think about the grand scheme of things, and you'll have temporary peace 
and let's call that stupid peace because it only lasts for a while. If our faith is not true, then we're stuck in this life for hopefully 70, 80 years until we die, and the happiness that we know is all we will ever know in this life. And if trouble or disease or disaster or heartache comes and takes that happiness away, then too bad, so sad, it's gone forever. On the other hand, if Jesus is on the throne and steering all things, even the bad things for our ultimate good and for his ultimate glory, or this is as good as it gets. And we believe the first, right? So if you're a Christian, you need to think big, think deeply. I was climbing a mountain in Oregon earlier this year, and um, the path wasn't really clear at first. Uh, we, we were in the trees, and then we were over a river, and then we were back over a river, and it seems like you're kind of going around the mountain instead of up the mountain, but then you finally reach a point where you can kind of turn around, and you can see where you've been, and when you do, you realize why you had to cross the river and come back across the river and why you had to go around and not up first. Your perspective from that high gives you clarity. And Christians, that's what Paul is telling you to do, to think big and high and deeply, to look over the span of history and realize who God is, what he has done, who you are in Jesus and where all of history is going. Put your pain in perspective by remembering Christ's pain on your behalf. Remember his promises to you. Remember what he's accomplishing through you. Think about the big picture, and as you do, you will be led to the peace that God gives him, himself. And let's call that smart peace. The peace that comes when we take intentional time to think. Now let's go back to the middle of the Atlantic Ocean on that cold December night. And Horatio Spafford is over the spot where his four daughters were lost at sea. And I want you to put yourself in his shoes. How are you getting through that? What do you say to yourself as you're on the railing of that ship looking into the sea? What comfort, if any, is there to reach out and cling to? Now, by now in the sermon, you should know at least one action to take. As you can imagine, Horatio found sleep pretty impossible that night, but he did have a sermon for his heart. And his faith allowed him to be able to say to his heart this line, it is well, the will of God be done. It is well, the will of God be done. And the jury is out on exactly when, but most people think that right there on the ship, over the place where his daughters lost their lives, he used that line of thought to anchor one of the most famous hymns that we love singing. On some hotel stationery uh, that he had with him, he penned these words, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Peace or sorrow, no matter what, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. 
Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. For me, be it Christ, be it Christ hence to live. If Jordan above me shall roll, no pang shall be mine. For in death as in life thou wilt whisper thy peace to my soul. But Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest of my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound. And the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Look at those words. Think about those words. See Horatio Spafford getting through that night with just the comfort. It is well. The will of God be done. And ask yourself this. Was he not doing what Paul prescribes? Absolutely he was. He was thinking through the implications of his faith. He's reckoning. He's adding everything up. He's saying to himself, this is the worst thing that I could ever imagine happening. But even in the darkness, God is here. Even though I have been robbed of my very heart, God still loves me. Even though I am literally looking into the sea of death, I can say God is still light. It is well. I know Jesus gave his life so that I could be God's. And that's, that means I'll see my girls again, and it won't erase the pain, but it will turn the pain into something useful. The refrain goes this way. It is well with my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. The original manuscript has this line. I love this. Sing it up to Jesus. It is well. That's not in our hymn. I wish it was. I don't know how to put that in there. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. There's no way to use those kind of words unless you've learned the secret of contentment and peace, unless you know that the very presence of God is with you, guarding your heart and your soul with all the forces at his disposal. And here's, here's the important part I want you to know. Horatio Spafford wasn't anything special. Horatio Spafford was just a committed Christian trying to follow Jesus. He wasn't a famous evangelist. He, he didn't have a church somewhere. He's just a business guy trying to follow Jesus. And he learned the secret of contentment. And he wrote it in a song so that we could learn it as well. And if he can learn it, so can we. God, we thank you for Jesus, who is our only real peace. There's a condition in this text that before any thinking can even be attempted to, to bring the peace of God, we need to be in Christ Jesus. Because true peace only comes by way of a giver of peace. And the only one who has made peace possible with you, with the world, with ourselves, the only peace giver is Jesus. So help us to be in Jesus today, because only in him can we be in line for real peace. Help us to rest in his name and be rocks. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.